Many consider Mark's gospel, in a sense, Peter's gospel. If you're familiar with Christianity, the apostle Peter was a you know, very notable character. Some considered him the leader of the apostles. Um, lots of emotion, very outgoing. Early writings tell us that Mark was um, Peter's assistant and his writer. And so when you read his gospel account, it reads as if, you know, you would assume the way Peter would write. Super fast-paced. It has less focus on Jesus' teaching than any other gospel. More miracles than any other gospel. Lots of emotional language. Scholars point out that in his gospel, Mark uses the term immediately 42 times. Matthew does seven. Luke only uses that term once. And so it's just important for us to keep in mind as we go through and study it. It's not surprising Mark wrote that way because he was writing to a Roman audience. So you can translate that as a a Western audience. And a Western approach to teaching is give me the facts and information as quickly as possible. An Eastern approach to teaching is paint a picture or tell me a story and, and kind of lead me in discovering the truth you want me to know. And I simply point that out, one, maybe it's helpful to know, two, to just ask you to consider what is your natural learning style? I mean, we're all Westerners, but it's not a surprise as much as I love stories that I love a Western approach to learning. I want to tell the facts, give me the black and white details as quickly as possible. And a part of what God has been um, consistently telling me is, All of his scripture is God-breathed, and I need all of it. I don't need to only gravitate towards writers and books of the Bible that are written or teach the way I like. I probably really more so need others that stretch me and that can often seem confusing. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Thank you. I feel like I'm getting a couple of nods. I hope that makes sense. And so just keep that in mind um, as we go through and study this. And so let me pray, um, and then we'll jump in to Mark chapter 1. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and thank you that um, you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, can use this word um, to not simply inform our minds, but to transform our hearts. And we need that, Lord Jesus. So we ask that your word will go forth to accomplish your purpose. Thank you that it never returns void, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. This is printed in your bulletin and it'll be on the screen in front of you. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him to be baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair. He wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. So if you are a college football fan, or if you're not, you may be aware that the main storyline the past two weeks has been Colorado and Coach Prime. Coach Prime is the nickname for Deion Sanders, Hall of Famer, All-American at Florida State, played in the NFL and Major League Baseball, one of my favorite all-time athletes. And ever since Deion appeared on the scene at Florida State, he's been a showman. He even had like some rap videos back in the day. I mean, he's always been a character. And so two weeks ago when 
he took Colorado to TCU for the first game of the season. Um, it was the most watched game of the weekend. And it had the highest ratings, I think possibly even higher than the national championship game, which wasn't much of a game, sadly. And so everybody was wondering, right, what, what is Coach Prime in Colorado going to do? They're three touchdown underdogs, um, and they show up and put on a great show. They beat TCU, who went to the national championship last year. And at halftime, as Dion's coming off the field, the reporter runs up to him. And the question they ask is about his star player, Travis Hunter. Travis Hunter is a two-way player, which means he plays offense and defense, which is unheard of in today's game. And he had played over 60 snaps in the first half. He ended up playing 150 in the game. And he's great. 108-degree temperature on the field. So the reporter says, um, Coach Sanders, how do you keep Travis Hunter, you know, hydrated and ready to go for the second half with this many snaps on offense and defense? And Dion, in his brilliance, Coach Prime, doesn't say, well, he trains at altitude. We have IVs in the locker room. And we're going to give him a massage and foam roll. None of that. He says, oh, if he catches that long touchdown pass, the Heisman's already in his crib chilling. And then he just walks off. Now, he's brilliant because, one, you could think someone is really outlandish and says ridiculous things. You just dismiss them. You don't even consider it. But here I am as a fan, and I was curious, you know, an hour and a half earlier, can this kid, Travis Hunter, who just transferred from Jackson State, really play and excel in Power 5 football? And now when I'm considering how is he going to play the whole game, you know, conditioning-wise, Dion throws out that he should win the Heisman, and I'm like, Wow. He's right. I didn't even consider that, but for the rest of the year, his name will be in the conversation for the Heisman Trophy. And so it was a brilliant, shocking statement that wasn't dismissed, but rather made you consider something you had not considered previously. And that is the same thing that Mark is doing. As we study the Gospel of Mark, just think about Coach Prime as you read it. <laughs> right out of the gate, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, if you have grown up in church, you can just yawn your way past that. It doesn't hit you remotely the way it should. But this is a jaw-dropping um, declaration that Mark makes in verse 1. The term gospel was a Roman term that literally meant a declaration of good news that changed your life. It was often used um, when a great battle or victory was won. And they would send a herald back to the city to declare the, the battle is over, we have won. The battle is over, you have been set free, you're no longer slaves. And so this radical declaration of good news had profound implications for your life. And Mark and the early Christians after the resurrection of Jesus took this Roman term that was really more of a political and military term and they changed it. And they changed it and, and used it to actually refer to the greatest news ever uttered in human history. The good news declaration about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Mark says, this is the gospel, capital G, big gospel, and it concerns Jesus Christ. Now we hear that and we think Jesus' first name, Christ's second name, but that's not how that read. He says, this gospel is good news about Jesus, who is the Messiah. The long-awaited, a promised Messiah who God has been telling his people, people would come and administer God's rule on earth, that he would set God's people free from all oppressors. This refers to not just a new king, but the one true king. And then he says, just in case you haven't heard what I said, he is the son of God. This was a jaw-dropping 
declaration that changed everything. And here's our main point. A joke with the first service, and not really a joke, having three months to be able to just go to other churches and receive um, worship and not have to get up and teach or preach. My main takeaway was how much I need corporate worship. It was a huge gift, and I talk way too much in my sermons. So you're welcome. Maybe that's an answer to y'all's prayer. (laughs) I'm like, wow, these sermons are way too long if I haven't been studying the passage all week. So my goal, it's a goal, is to try to make my sermon shorter. So here's the main point. Don't miss this. The main point from today is that Christianity is good news. It's not good advice. It's not a good recommendation. It's not encouragement. It's not steps to make your life better. It is good news. It is a declaration about what God has already accomplished and what he will accomplish in the future. This news demands a response. It is a declaration of what has already been done. It is not good advice. Please hear me on that. If you understand that Christianity is good news, it will, for a fact, change your life. It will change every aspect of your life. Michael Horton says it this way, the heart of Christianity is good news. It comes not as a task for us to fulfill, a mission for us to accomplish, a game plan for us to follow with the help of life coaches, but as a report that someone else has already fulfilled, accomplished, followed, and achieved everything for us, period. Jesus' last words on the cross, John 19, 30, is it is finished. I'm telling you, I grew up attending church somewhat regularly, and I did not know this. When the Holy Spirit enabled me to understand that the, Christ, that the Christian message at its heart is a declaration of good news, I was speechless. It absolutely changed my life. And so, so the question I throw out for us to consider is, do you believe the good news? Like not just in your head, do you know it's good news, but do you actually believe the good news in your heart? One of the main ways you'll know you believe it is that you'll live with a sense of astonishment on a regular basis. That'll be the primary thing that stirs in your heart is there will be astonishment. How can it be that this is true for someone like me? How can it be that God would choose to place his favor upon me and it would actually cost the life and death of his perfect son? There should always be a sense of astonishment. I'm astonished, Lord, at the difference in my receiving and my deserving. And if that's not true, then, hey, I'm glad you're here. This is an opportunity for you to get in touch with reality. You don't believe the good news, right? And maybe that's why God brought you here today was to help you hear and receive that this is good news. And Mark goes on to explain, like, this has happened the way that God promised He's like, I'm not just making this up. I haven't just gotten excited and gotten carried away by a certain teacher the way people would often do. But this has happened exactly as God has promised. See, God's people knew from Isaiah 40, which was roughly 600 years earlier, and then Malachi 3, which was roughly 400 years earlier, God had promised before the long-awaited Messiah comes, a messenger will prepare the way, which again, this, even this God's brilliance and wisdom and knowing when this was gonna happen In a Roman context, that's how they would actually send in the news of a conquering king. A herald would come to prepare the way. And so Mark says, right after this unbelievable declaration that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, he says, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. 
the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And so a few things going on here that are noteworthy. One, Mark is saying, we've all been looking for the messenger. This guy, John, who was preaching in the wilderness, was in fact the long-awaited promised messenger that came to prepare the way of the Lord. Now, the thing that shocked them is they thought when the messenger comes, he's going to come and prepare the way, and then the Messiah is going to drop the political hammer on our enemies. But instead, John showed up, and he said, hey, the thing that you need most isn't freedom from political oppression. The thing you need most is for your sins to be forgiven. And that's what was the focus of his ministry was. He was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. And the reason he's known as John the baptizer instead of John the weirdo who lived in the you know, country and, and ate locust and honey is because no one was baptizing like this back then. See, during this time, the only people that received baptism were Gentiles who did not grow up in the church. And so when a foreigner converted and entered into worship of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true living guide, they would be baptized. But the Jews did not receive this type of baptism. And so when John comes in, he's like, no, 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 you've got it wrong. The Messiah is not coming to just punish all your enemies. You need to repent because he's coming to deliver you from the greatest enemy in your life, which is your own sin nature. That's why he's coming. And that's why all of you need to repent. He doesn't tell them you need to get more focused on your obedience. You need to double down on your effort and your duty. The Messiah is coming, and the only appropriate response is faith and repentance. And that's why he was considered such a a crazy character. And he says this baptism that you need to undergo isn't merely an external ritual. This isn't simply showing up and checking a box. Notice what he says um, in Luke chapter 3. And this is emphasizing how much our external um, baptism and participation in the sacraments, like the Lord's Supper, needs to reflect a heart reality. So in Luke 3, John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now think about that. Think if I stood up this morning and said, hey, welcome to Hope Community Church, you brood of vipers. What the heck do you think you're doing here? Who warned you to flee from God's judgment and punishment? Get the heck out of here. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying. He says, Don't, he says, you need to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. And what he means is, don't begin to say to yourselves, bro, we grew up in the church. I'm a covenant child. I received the sign when I was born. My parents, my grandparents, my cousins, my neighbor, the person at the grocery store, we've all been Christians forever. He says, if this doesn't take root in your heart, then you are in for judgment. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then the crowd said to him, well, what then shall we do? And he said, whoever has two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, what is he saying there? Translation, do we believe the good news? How do I know? How am I not deceiving myself? 
He says right here, very quickly and plainly, the way you know that you believe the good news, that the Holy Spirit is now dwelling within you, is that you are eager and willing to be open-handed to anyone in need. Being open-handed and merciful to people in need does not produce a changed heart. It is evidence of a changed heart. It is evidence of a heart that knows I belong to the sovereign king. I don't have to live in fear that if I begin to give things away, I'm not going to have enough. I don't have to live in fear that if I don't take care of myself, no one's going to look out for me. Instead, I know that there is only one true king, and he rules and reigns over all things, and even the hairs on my head are numbered, and he knows them. So I don't have to live like a fearful orphan anymore. Of course, I could simply answer, how do you know you believe the good news? By saying you're all in. There's no such thing as this lukewarm half in, half out. Jesus says to the church in Revelation 3, because you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, you've got to keep those types of statements you know, in context with John 10, 28, where Jesus says, those that the Father give me, no one can snatch out of my hand. Now, he's not contradicting himself there. What he's saying is you can easily fool yourself into thinking that you believe the good news when you don't. The way you know you believe it is it will naturally evidence itself in a life of good deeds of mercy. There will be an eagerness and a joy and an excitement to give your life away. Do we live as if the gospel is good news? Or do we live as if it's just good advice? I think one of the hard things for us, at least for me, is you know, for the roughly 250 years that our country, you know, has been established is we've had very, very few times of ever receiving news that actually changed our life. If you think about it in the negative, maybe I ask it this way. Where were you when the world stopped turning on that September day? 22 years ago, tomorrow, when the 9-11 terrorist attacks happened. And I reference that because that was awful news that changed our lives. No one in our country on that day and since then, has been indifferent. We have all been affected. Even if you say, I don't care about New York, I don't care about Islamic terrorists, I don't care about any of that stuff, I'm gonna act like it didn't happen, your life was still affected. That was news that affected your life, again, in the negative. The gospel is good news. It is a good news declaration that demands a verdict and changes every aspect of our lives. Maybe one way it's even helpful to consider is one of the, you know, sad realities coming out of 9-11 was how easy it was for me or for us to say, I'm so much better than those Islamic, Islamic terrorists. I would never do the things that they did. That was the exact same heart posture of many of the Jews towards the Gentiles. And John the baptizer says, not the Islamic terrorists, they're not the only ones who need repentance. You need repentance. And they're like, wait, what? I've never done the thing. Shh. The law of God silences every mouth. And the Messiah comes. And he says, all who come to me and humble themselves and receive the forgiveness of their sins will have eternal life. But that requires, in order for us to believe the good news, that we acknowledge, I need it. I don't deserve it. So again, do you believe the good news. That's, our, that's a, the charge and the thing I want us to really, really consider. 
today and this week. I love that Luke said, the way you'll know is that you'll be open-handed. You'll seek to give your tunics to others. This is a really cool thing that I learned this week. I didn't know this before. But Mark, the writer of this gospel, his mother was Mary, who comes up later, especially in Acts of the Apostles. So in Acts chapter 12, there's a story of Peter being released from prison. An angel of the Lord comes in, sets him free. The Lord had more work for him to do. And it says that when Peter got set free, he went straight to the home of Mary, the mother of Mark, who's writing this gospel. And that's where all the other believers were gathered. And so commentators have pointed out this truth about Mary. Not only was Mary rich, she was also generous. She was wholeheartedly devoted to Christ's cause and therefore willing to make available her facilities whenever they were needed by the Christian community. She was committed. She was brave. It would have been unbelievably risky with the persecution that was taking place in this context for her to do this, to associate with the apostles, to give all of her resources to them to be used for the advancement of the kingdom. And I love that commentators have pointed out that Mark grew up in a home where his mom modeled being committed and all in with Jesus. And in many ways, the Spirit used that to pass down a living faith to her son. And that hit me, not just because I'm a father and the greatest desire of my heart is that my three girls know the Lord, but as a community, we have a lot of kids. Even with the awful, heartbreaking tragedy of what happened last week, it's even highlighted, I think, the fearful nature we have of our kids, not just that there's going to be a tragedy, but that we want our kids to know the Lord. One of the things this highlights is the greatest gift you can give your kids and one of the most encouraging ways the Spirit can use you to pass down a living faith is by being open-handed and outward-facing, not just simply showing up here on Sundays. Think about what Rosaria Butterfield says in her book, The Gospel Comes at the House Key. Those who live out radically ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors. They seek out the underprivileged. They know that the gospel comes with a house key. Radically ordinary and daily hospitality is the basic building block for vital Christian living. Start anywhere, but do start. And this is just very simply her application of what John said in 1 John 3, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let us really consider, Lord, search me and know me. Do I actually believe the gospel is good news or it's just good advice? If you're actually hearing what Mark's saying, you can't be indifferent. It would be greater for you to leave here today outraged and angry, furious at the notion that you're a sinner in need of a savior, at least you're paying attention. The deadliest of deadly conditions for your heart is just to be bored by that message. That is when you really, really, really need to be concerned. Now the last point, the last point I want to make with do we believe that the gospel is good news is that we will know by how we live our life, especially are our hearts actually relaxed and trusting in our sovereign king? You may be confused even by the quote on the front of your bulletin. I'm going to read it in a second. But the reason, and this is going to be kind of our emphasis throughout, the one true king, not we should consider making Jesus the king, but he is the one true king. You don't need me to be Captain Obvious and tell you this, but we live in the most politically toxic climate our country has ever seen, arguably since the Civil War. The Republican primaries have already started back up. 
We're, we're in prime position for it to be toxic and volatile once again. And I'm not saying politics don't matter. I'm not saying policy doesn't matter. It does. And an application of loving our neighbor is to consider and humbly pray and think about who we support and all of that. Okay, so don't, don't hear me saying politics don't matter. I think a lot of our division, bitterness, self-righteousness around political issues reflect that we're not really trusting Jesus as king. The first week I was on sabbatical, I was in New York City for class. I'm in my third year of a doctoral program at Covenant Seminary. It's been absolutely amazing. I'm unbelievably thankful for the gift it's been. Well, in New York, we were studying kind of vision and alignment within an organization, and we met with Redeemer Presbyterian Church's kind of senior leadership team. If you're not familiar with Redeemer, that was the church that Tim Keller um, founded 36 years ago, a huge hero of mine and, and a huge influence on our church. And so we're hearing stories about the history of Redeemer and kind of their structure and alignment. Um, and at one point, one of my classmates said, hey, is there anything that Keller was really discouraged about that he felt like a disappointment over? Because by every metric, their church has been an unreal success. And without hesitation, one of the pastors says, oh, yeah, before he died, we were having a conversation. And he said he thought the one thing that they got right at Redeemer for 35 years is that we don't struggle with political idolatry. And if you're familiar with his sermons and writings, he's always been so adamant that the kingdom of God does not fully align with the right or the left. It's a different way completely. He said, so he really thought all the other issues we, we, we might have, that's not one. And then 2020 happened. And he realized, oh my gosh, almost every single person in our church has varying degrees of political idolatry. Now, the weird thing about this is these guys, you could tell they were sad and heavy as they shared that, while every one of my classmates, we were so relieved. Because in a weird way, we were like, gosh, we had wrongly been thinking for a few years, if we were just better pastors like Keller, that wouldn't have happened in all of our churches all over the country. But it did. It did. And that's why I hope and pray as we read through Mark's gospel we can constantly think, reflect, and hear the Spirit saying, regardless who's in power politically in your country, regardless of what's happening in the courts or in the schools or anything else, Jesus is king. He rules and reigns right now. You don't have to be afraid. I feel like the number one thing Jesus told me on sabbatical is, I want you to go back and I want you to serve me with a relaxed heart. And I'm serious, and I'm saying this publicly because I need you all to pray for me and to help me and then I get up this morning to start working on the sermon. I'm like, my goal is for it to be shorter and it's still long. I'm trying to like wind it down. <laughs> so I start praying and then I listen to the Lectio 365 prayer devotional. I don't know if anyone else listened to it. And, and they're talking about how they asked Dallas Willard, who was a longtime pastor and soul care, spiritual formation guy. If you had one word to describe Jesus, what would it be? He said, relaxed, relaxed. And I realized, Lord, I really need you. I can think that I'm not that amped up or care about who's in power politically or whatever else, but my heart is way too anxious and afraid and fearful about many things. But you're the king, and I belong to you, and I need to remember that. And so here's what Keller says. He says, we can look upon political leaders as messiahs, our political policies as saving doctrine. We can turn political activism into a kind of religion now, you may think, that's not me. I dismiss it. Listen to this sentence. And he wrote this 15 years ago. 
One of the signs that an object is functioning as an idol is that fear becomes one of our chief characteristics of life. Can we relate? Does anyone struggle with fear besides me in this room? When we center our lives on an idol, we become dependent on it. If our counterfeit guide is threatened in any way, our response is complete panic. We don't say what a shame, how difficult, but rather this is the end, there's no hope. This may be the reason why people now respond to U.S. political trends in such extreme ways. This accounts for the constant political cycles of overblown hopes and disillusionment, for the increasingly poisonous political discourse, and the disproportionate fear and despair when one's political party loses power. Now, we should not be surprised at all that this is happening in the world. If you don't know Jesus is king, of course you need someone else to give you promises and hopes that they can never deliver on. But that should not be the case for the children of God. And so today we have an opportunity to have our weak and fearful hearts nourished and strengthened the way our Lord Jesus told us to by coming to his table. The Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If you're here today and you have asked Jesus to save you from your sins, and the Holy Spirit lives within you, then we want to invite you to come and partake. If that's not where you are, if you're not even sure, if you're still processing the truth claims of Christianity, we are really glad you're here and want you to keep coming, but don't come and partake today. There is absolutely no benefit. There's actually a great danger for our hearts, um, like in every other area of our lives, when we fake it and pretend to believe something that is not true. In order to prepare our hearts for taking the Lord's Supper, I would invite you, if you're willing, um, to say this corporate prayer together. It's going to be up on our screen, and it'll finish with the Lord's Prayer. And so as we begin, if the worship team wants to come on up, and then we'll partake together. Most gracious and merciful Heavenly Father, we praise you for your grace and mercy given to us. We confess that we have regularly sinned against you and thought, word and deed. Forgive us, we pray. We confess that we have been much more concerned with our kingdom coming and our will being done, and as a result, are often filled with both fear and anger. Forgive us, we pray. We confess that we have not lived open-handed and outward-facing lives, but have been both selfish and greedy. Forgive us, we pray. Thank you, Father, that you are eager to forgive and cleanse our hearts. Help us as your people to be quick to confess our sins and run to your throne of grace. Thank you that you do not deal with us according to what our sins deserve, but rather deal with us according to the perfect life, sacrificial death, and glorious resurrection of our Savior King, Jesus Christ, your Son. We ask that by the power 
and nourish our hearts now. We partake of your bread and wine. For we pray the prayer that you taught us, saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen.